Hey, it's good to spend some time uh, with you. We are uh, continuing to work through our series called uh, Christ's Likeness in Culture, and uh, we're on the last part of uh, this particular series. And I wanted to uh, share a story with you in order to uh, get started. Uh, deep in the heart of the gentrified downtown district of Charleston, South Carolina, nestled uh, between the designer boutiques and uh, the upscale restaurants, uh, lies 536 King Street, home of the Reeves and Son Shoe Repair Shop, the only remaining shoe repair shop in all of Charleston. And it's a shop whose history dates all the way back to prior to uh, the Civil War. And as soon as one walks into uh, the, the shoe repair shop, you're, you're like transported into like a bygone era. Uh, the powder blue walls, they are plastered with uh, dusty plaques and faded family pictures and, and yellowed newspaper clippings of stories about uh, local people. The heavily worn floor is filled with uh, shoe repair equipment and piles of leather and scores of plant and potted plants all over the place. And, and then there, there's the electric fans that are needed to, to drain away the, the, the heat and the steam uh, from the heavy South Carolina summers. Now, this shop was originally started by a fellow by the name of W.D.B. Reeves. He was a, a white uh, Confederate soldier. He was a vet, veteran of the, the Civil War. And for decades, this uh, store, this shop, had been run by members of his family, moving from one generation to the next. Now, sometime in the early 1960s, there was a, a young man by the name of Elijah Dixon. And uh, he was a young black man, and he was hired to help repair the shoes. He was a, a quick learner. He was a, a dedicated employee, and so dedicated that when the youngest of the Reeves finally got to retirement, and there was no one else to take over the shop, it was decided that Elijah would be the one who would get to keep the shop. And so the, the family basically, I don't know whether they actually gave it to him or whether it was a small financial transaction, but Elijah was able to take over the shoe repair shop. And for the next two decades, Elijah, he faithfully repaired shoes in the midst of this store in Charleston, South Carolina. He did it six days a week until 1978 when he passed away. And he left the store to his wife, Doris. And rather than shutter the, the business, because Doris had never, ever learned how to do the shoes, she decides that she's going to learn how to do the shoes and repair the shoes and keep the business open. And she's done that for the last 40 years. That was until the governor of South Carolina closed all the businesses in order to, to stop the spread of the COVID-19 virus. Now, not being able to, to operate her store for the last two and a half months has been hard. But things got a lot harder last Saturday evening. 
During that evening, there was a group of people uh, amongst all of the peaceful protesters there in Charleston. And, and this, uh, they were protesting the horrific killing of, of George Floyd. And this small group of people, uh, they decided that they would break off from the larger group and they would begin to riot. And in the process of venting their anger, they senselessly vandalized businesses up and down King Street. They messed up the designer boutiques. They busted into the expensive restaurants. And they went to Doris's shoe repair shop. They vandalized the front of the building. They broke in all the windows. And she was one of only five black-owned businesses in all of King Street anymore. And as she surveyed the damage this sun, past Sunday morning, last Sunday morning, she was wondering how her, and you see her on the screen, how her frail 80-something-year-old body could possibly clean up the mess and secure the building. And as she was pondering what was going on, she hears a noise. She turns around, and standing before her are three young white women, a white young man, three black ladies, and a black young man, probably no more than 14 or 15 years old. They're all wearing masks and gloves. They're all holding brooms and dustpans and rags and trash bags. They, they had heard about the violence that had occurred the last evening before, and they had decided to come and do something to help. And for the next few hours, this beautiful mosaic of, of races and genders and ages cleaned up the mess, and they secure the building, and then they slipped away off to help another business owner who had been vandalized. And the diametrically opposed actions, intentional evil versus intentional good that occurred last weekend at Miss Doris's shoe repair shop sets the stage for our discussion today about the final two attributes of the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness and self-control. And these two attributes along with the balance of the rest of the attributes of the fruit of the Spirit that we've examined over the last five weeks, they should consistently emanate from, from those of us who, who claim the name of Christ, regardless of our skin color, regardless of our life experiences, regardless of our political preferences. So I want to get started this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, I would like you to open it up. Uh, to Galatians chapter 5. If you have a Bible app on your phone, uh, make your way to Galatians chapter 5. We are going to look at verses 22 and 23. Uh, your phone should probably automatically go there since we've been going there for the past uh, five weeks or so. Bible's probably open right to them also. Uh, but if you have it, please, if you're able to stand in honor of God's word, I would humbly ask you to do that even if you are at home watching. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, when, when Pastor Ben and Mike Bongo and I uh, decided to go ahead and develop this series called Christ-likeness in Crisis, our intent was to, to help the entirety of our church family to take a, a critical look at, at each of our lives and uh, to determine whether or not our lives really align with the character of Christ, especially as it relates uh, in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis. Because we knew that times of crisis reveal the true character of every human being. And it's relatively easy uh, to pretend that you're something that you're not when everything is going smoothly. That's not real difficult. We can put on our masks, we can kind of deceive people and things like that when everything's going smoothly. But when crisis intervenes, when hardship happens, when there's suffering and pain and, and doubt and confusion and the like, when that stuff enters our lives, that's when our true character is revealed. But never did we possibly imagine that in the midst of this series that was designed to, to help us all, that there would be a second crisis. But a little less than two weeks ago, that's exactly what happened with the killing of George Floyd at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer and the subsequent protests and riots and violence that continues to this day. And without warning, all of a sudden now we're, we're confronted with the, the issues again of police violence and racial injustice and mass protests followed by mass lawlessness. All of it gets inflamed by the 24-hour the day news cycle. All of it gets inflamed by the thoughtless and foolish and insensitive posts on social media that sadly outshadow many of the insightful and thoughtful posts that many people in our church family have put up. And it's all inflamed by the shameful and ever-present desire of many of our political leaders of all stripes and of all backgrounds to gain advantage over the rivals. Now, I have to tell you that attempting to navigate these treacherous waters has been extremely difficult. And what makes it even more difficult is we're part of a diverse church family who possess a, a wide variety of views, come from a wide variety of life experiences. Uh, many of us are from different uh, parts of the world, so we see things very, very differently. Many of us have grown up in different kinds of families. Uh, we've got different political views. We come from different ethnicities, different economic classes. We've all had different kinds of experiences. And what happens is at times, that puts us not only in conflict with one another, but it also at times puts us in conflict with the gospel. You see, the things that we've learned and the lenses that we look through aren't necessarily always aligned with who God is and what God does. And as fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, we want to choose a path that, that pleases God, loves others, but that path 
as we all know, is not always clear, and we definitely know that that path is not always easy. Yet that's what we're called to do, so here we go. The last two fruit of the Spirit are gentleness and self-control, which have been heartbreakingly absent in much of what has been happening over the last several weeks. And like goodness and faithfulness from last week, gentleness and and self-control, they're highly interrelated. They're very close to one another. They're dependent on one another. And gentleness is is an essential uh, element in a healthy relationship. If we want to develop and grow in a relationship with another person, especially a person who's different than us, who's had different experience than us, who looks different than us, who's come from a different place than us, then we need to embrace gentleness. However, if we want to hinder or destroy a relationship, especially with a person that's different than us, then we embrace the antithesis of gentleness, which is brutality. And so we give people a piece of our mind. We say what we feel without ever giving a a thought about what other people feel. We want to put them in their place. And that's pretty much how, how things work in the 21st century right now, especially as it relates to societal issues. Because rather than being gentle towards people, we brutalize them instead. We don't care who they are. We don't care how they feel. We don't care what they've been through. We, don't wanna, we just want to make our point. We want to destroy their point regardless of the damage. And the last thing that we want to do is be gentle because we think that gentleness equates with weakness. But that view doesn't align with God's word. You see, the biblical concept of gentleness comes from a Greek word called pros, which is a term the ancient Greeks used to tame wild animals, or describe the taming of wild animals, I should say. So, so visualize a horse. You know, you get your typical horse, 2,000 pounds of pure muscle able to pull 4,000 pounds. You hook a, a, car, a horse up to a car, that horse drag that car around wherever you want it to go. Yeah, you plop on top of that horse a petite little 110-pound woman, and she can make that horse go wherever she wants because that horse has been tamed. Now, that horse has got great strength, But that great strength is under great control. And that, brothers and sisters, that's pros. That's gentleness. And through the pages of Scripture, Jesus is defined as being gentle or described as being gentle. For instance, instance, in Matthew chapter 21, we, we find Jesus. He's in his last week of his life. He's entering the city of Jerusalem on on a, a donkey to cheers of hundreds, if not thousands, of people. And this is how Matthew describes Jesus as coming into Jerusalem. It says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, 
Behold, your king is coming to you, humble. Praus could be translated gentle. And mounting on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So here is Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem, not on a war horse like some conquering king, but rather he's entering the city of Jerusalem, being worshipped as a king, yet he's riding on a donkey like a common man. And it doesn't get more gentle than that. Yet these few verses, and a few verses later, you know what you see? You, you see Jesus using his great power, yet under great control, throwing over the tables in the temple because they were exploiting those who had come to worship. You see, make no mistake about it, gentleness is not weakness. It is great power under great control. And it is here that gentleness intersects with self-control. Self-control is, is the combination of two Greek words. It's, it's enkratos. And, and en means in, and kratos means strength or power. Uh, it's where we get the idea theocratic, which means God's power, or God's rule, or democratic, which means people's power, or people's rule. You see, self-control is ultimately its self-rule. It's the restraining of, of one's emotions and actions and desires so that it's all in harmony with the will of God. Now, what happens here when we have self-control, we don't allow our feelings or emotions, which change like the wind, to control us. And we don't allow the opinions or actions of other people to control us. We don't allow our situations to control us. And Peter speaks of this very characteristic in Jesus' life when he says this. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, and by his wounds, you and I have been healed. You see, you and I, we are the direct beneficiaries of Jesus's self-control. He was abused, accused, attacked, arrested, ultimately murdered, and through it all, Jesus Christ had the self-control to never sin even though he was both fully man and fully God. And as a result of, of his sinless life and his sacrificial death and his victorious uh, conquering of his resurrection, we, through repentance and faith, have access to the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Self-control gives you and I lives of balance, it helps us to stand against excess. And it's this self-control that powers the gentleness in our lives. 
And so like, just like we did last week with goodness and faithfulness, we're going to address these two topics simultaneously. We're going to address gentleness and self-control together. And one of the most vivid examples of the relationship between gentleness and self-control is found in John 8 when Jesus engages the Jewish leaders who want to make want to stone the woman caught in adultery. Let me read it to you. It'll also be on the big screen. They went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, so what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bowed down or bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, in this particular passage, uh, we learn a couple things uh, about self-control and gentleness. The first is this. Gentleness and self-control respectfully engage those who oppose us. Notice how Jesus engages the religious leaders. First of all, he meets them where they are the most powerful. He meets them in the temple. Because the priests, they're they're the stewards of the temple. They're the men in robes. They're the ones who lead the worship services. They're the ones who who make the sacrifices happen. They're the ones who who make and enforce the religious rules that that govern the community. It was their leader, the high priest, who was allowed the great privilege one time a year to go into the Holy of Holies. You see, the temple is the place where the religious leaders felt the safest and the most powerful. Second, Jesus has absolutely nothing to hide from them. Jesus has been doing all of his teaching right in the midst of the synagogues and the temples, and all of the Jewish religious leaders could see and hear what Jesus was teaching. He wasn't hiding in some kind of smoke-filled back room, you know, colluding with his disciples to to figure out how, how he could wreck the, the, the Pharisees' world, he wasn't doing anything like that. He did everything in the open. Uh, remember the trial that, that he has before the, the chief priest. This is the, the dialogue that happens. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. 
I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They will know what I said. You see, Jesus had absolutely nothing to hide. Third, even though the Jesus knows that, that he's being trapped, that a trap has been set for them, that his enemies are, are coming after him by, by bringing this woman who has been caught in adultery and asking Jesus whether she should be stoned. He engages them respectfully in their game. He doesn't yell. He doesn't get in their face. He doesn't talk over them. He simply listens to what they have to say. And I ask you, is that how you and I deal with the people who come against us? Is that the way that we behave? When someone comes and gives us a hard time or is our enemy, is that the way that it works? Do we go to them or do we make them come to us? Do we speak openly about what we believe or do we work in the darkness plotting and planning in, in an effort to, to somehow get the upper hand on our enemy? And when we know that those who oppose us are trying to trap us, do we engage them gently or do we give them the fullness of our wrath? The Bible teaches us that how we respond to those who are opposed to us, reveals our true character. Proverbs 29, 11 says this, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Fools vent, fools rage, fools shout and scream, the wise carefully choose their tone, they carefully choose their words, the wise thoughtfully engage those who are opposed to them. Fools are brutal and reckless. The wise are gentle and self-controlled. And one of the things that gentleness and self-control does, it has this amazing power to de-escalate things. In Proverbs 15, you read this. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You see, Jesus was able to be gentle and self-controlled with those who opposed him because he knew the power of gentleness. And what the priests perceived as weakness was in reality Great strength under great control. Now the second thing we learn about gentleness and self-control is this, that it firmly stands against injustice. And in order to understand the second point, you've got to know a little bit about the Old Testament law as it relates to adultery. 
Now, Israel was a, a theocracy, which means it, it was, uh, it had, uh, its king was basically God. It wasn't basically God. Its king was God. And, and the Old Testament law, it served not only as religious law about how, you know, ministry was supposed to operate, but it served also as civil law, how things were supposed to work between people and between the government. In Leviticus 20.10, it articulates the civil law as it relates to someone who engages in adultery. And it's pretty straightforward. If a man commits adultery with a wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now, brothers and sisters, the United States is not a theocracy. And as such, we're not under the civil law of the ancient Israelites. Jesus uh, brought a new covenant, a, a new law. We don't, we don't stone people who've, who've committed adultery. But in Jesus' day, that is exactly what happened. Both the man and the woman that were involved in the adulterous affair are, are, are brought before the people and they are stoned to death. But notice what is happening in Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees and this woman. It says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say, Jesus? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, how the Pharisees catch this couple in the midst of adultery is a mystery. Because last time I checked, one of the primary goals of being in an adulterous affair is not to get caught. You don't do this in a, in a place where you're going to get caught because if you do, you are going to get caught. And so what happens here, uh, we, we don't know exactly what happened. We don't know if this woman was, was set up so that she could be a pawn in the, in the Pharisees' game to trap Jesus or whether the, the Pharisees actually caught her in the act. But this is what we do know. We know that the Jewish law said both the man and the woman were supposed to be stoned. We also know that it was a trap for Jesus. And we know the woman was guilty because in verse 11, Jesus tells her to go and from now on sin no more. And unlike us, because Jesus is God and God is all-knowing, Jesus knows exactly what happened. Jesus knew the exact nature of the affair. He knew the, the parties involved in the affair. He knew the injustice that was occurring right in front of his eyes because both the man and the woman were supposed to be punished, but only the woman is there. So he does something remarkable. Look again at verses 7 and 8. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, 
They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus gently exposes the hypocrisy and the injustice of the religious leaders. And for centuries, people have tried to figure out what Jesus actually wrote on the ground. Seminary students have, have written papers on it. Uh, professors have written you know, articles on the whole thing, trying to figure out what it was. Was it the name of the guy who was the other part of the adulterous affair? Perhaps it was one of the Pharisees that was participating in the setup. Uh, was it uh, the text of Leviticus 2010? Did, did Jesus write out the law that they were violating? Was it the names of the women that some of the Pharisees were having their own affair with? We don't know that. Could have been. Now, that would be a great question one day to ask Jesus. You know, you're with Jesus and you got some spare time in heaven. I'm not sure how it all works in heaven kind of thing. But, you know, it's like, Jesus, dude, I got to know. You know, I got to know. What, what did you write on the ground, man? Now, of course, what he wrote doesn't matter nearly as much as the fact that not only did Jesus stand against the injustice, but he did it in a very powerful and effective, yet gentle way. One simple statement. Only a couple of words have to be written on the ground. That's all it took. You see, sometimes it doesn't take much for you and me to stand up against injustice. It simply requires that we open our eyes and we see things for, for, for what they really are, see this injustice for what it really is, and it's a sin against another, and it is ultimately a sin against God. But we don't stop there. We actually do something about it. Listen to the words of Proverbs 31, 8, 9. Open your mouth. For the mute, for the rights of those who are destitute, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Yet how we do that actually matters, folks. If we sin in the midst of calling out injustice, God's word tells us that we're as sinful as the one who is actually doing the injustice. Proverbs 17 says this, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Folks, it's easy in the process of condemning injustice, to turn a blind eye to those who are joining you in, in condemning the injustice, yet they're doing it in a sinful way. It's easy to do that. You believe this, 
They believe this, but what they're doing against it is sin. And we turn a blind eye to it. And what's worse than just turning a blind eye to those who sin in the name of condemning injustice is to actually try to justify their sin. And when we do that, we're told that it is an abomination. I don't think God can use a stronger word. That it is an abomination to the Lord. And brothers and sisters, that's God's word. That's not my word. And that's the beauty of what Jesus does here as he writes in the sand. He deals with injustice gently, using great power under great self-control. He doesn't have to shout. He doesn't have to get in somebody's face. He doesn't have to break anything. He allows the power of gentleness, great strength under great self-control to do all of the work for him. Now, the third thing that we learned, the third and final, is this about gentleness and self-control. They're able to condemn sin while at the same time offering grace. You see, where their injustice clearly exposed, one by one, the religious leaders, they walk away, leaving only Jesus and the woman. I mean, can you picture this scene? And you got to imagine this woman was thrown into the midst of this group of men. And you got to imagine this group of men was shouting and yelling and pressuring Jesus. And this woman, she's, she's terrified. She's caught in the act of adultery. She probably doesn't even have all her clothes. And she's in front of all of these men. I mean, how horrible can this possibly be? Yet there is one man who stands up for her. And all these other dirt bags, they begin to walk away one by one by one. And this terrified woman is looking right at Jesus. And Jesus stands up and says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now, i got to tell you, if this would have been me, or perhaps if this would have been you, that would have been the end. I would have looked at this broken woman, and I would have concluded this woman has just been used. She has been traumatized. She has been brutalized. She has experienced way too much pain at the hands of of men, and I would have just let her go home. I would have been done with it. I would have thought that was the right thing to do. But you know what Jesus does? Jesus doesn't ever, ever, ever give sin a pass. Never. Look at what happens in verse 11. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. 
go, and from now on, sin no more. You see, Jesus is able to do something that you and I really need to figure out how to do. He is able to gently confront the sinner while at the same time gently confronting the sin. And he's able to to gently love the sinner while gently condemning the sin. You see, Jesus didn't give this woman a pass because she was a victim of injustice, like many of us are tempted to do in similar situations. Instead, he called her to something greater. He wanted to bring true healing to this woman, not some kind of temporal, earthly healing. He wanted to bring true, lasting healing to her. And that something greater that he wanted to give her was was grace. Grace so beautiful. Grace so powerful. Grace so bright. Grace so amazing that it drives us to repent of our sin while at the same time covering our sin with the shed blood of Jesus. And it is that grace that should cause us to be so incredibly careful when we engage others in the midst of their sin. Paul speaks of this very thing in his letter to the Galatians immediately after he lists the fruit of the Spirit. As chapter 5 gives way, chapter 6 says this, Brothers, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, He deceives himself. You see, one of the reasons why we need to be gentle with the sin of others is because we have our own problems, folks. Every single one of us. Me standing in the front of the line. And when our sin gets exposed for all to see, we certainly are going to want people to be gentle with us. So where do we go from here? The world that we thought that we knew back in early March is different, very different. We went from an economy that was kicking on all eight cylinders to economy that's really struggling. And there's this stock market that's recovered and stuff like that, but the stock market's not the whole of the economy, folks. There are tons of people still out of work. It is far different than what it looked like February 1. We went from shaking hands and hugging on Sunday morning to wearing masks, gloves, 
You know, you can go back to your house if you forget your hand sanitizer. That's where we're at right now. We went from cities that appeared to be living in relative peace to cities that are on fire. Lots of things have changed in a very, very short period of time. But let me tell you what hasn't changed. God has not changed. He's not changed. The sin of humanity has not changed. It just looks a little different nowadays. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension into heaven, and his promise that he's coming back, that has not changed. Jesus' grace for sinners like me and like you has not changed. Our need to repent of our sin and receive that grace through faith That has not changed. God's command that we are to love him and to love others and to faithfully share his gospel, that has not changed. Our need to consider others better than ourselves, to be peacemakers, to tear down the walls of injustice, to care for the orphan and widow, to heal the sick, to encourage the downtrodden, to to break the walls down that divide us and keep us from being able to build meaningful relationships with other people different than us, none of that has changed. And so, whether we got on masks or gloves, and we're outside doing whatever we're doing, as we press forward, we we need to, to strive to continue to live lives of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, trusting that Jesus is going to make up for the failures because we're going to fail. We are not always going to get this right, you guys. But we don't give up, and we don't stop, and we don't run away. But instead, we embrace gentleness, which is strength under control. And we use that gentleness to point people to their only hope. The only thing that is going to change this world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, you are good. Thank you for uh, this morning. Thank you for these folks. We pray for our nation. We pray for our world. Lord, we pray that you would help us to have eyes that are open to see things the way that you see them. Would you remove the lenses that are so clouded from our own experiences, Heavenly Father, and help us to see things the way that you see them, for that is what is true. 
Help us, Heavenly Father, to speak out against injustice. Help us, Heavenly Father, to care for those who are hurting and wounded and downtrodden. And help us, Heavenly Father, to show others the reason for the hope that we have. And it's through your Son's name we pray. And all God's people said, 